Hi there, thanks for downloading the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. You can find out more at fantasy-animation.org as well as via our social media channels on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research. If you like what you see, then please do support the show by subscribing, liking and reviewing the show. A quick written review, five stars, would be really, really helpful. It helps make the visibility of the programme even more. It helps us reach more listeners and it helps justify what we're doing to our employers. Um, So please, please take a minute out of your life to help the show. It would really help us create more content for you. Otherwise, sit back, relax and enjoy the latest episode. listeners welcome to the latest episode of the fantasy animation podcast with me chris holiday and me alex Sargent. so for this episode we are doing we are well first of all we're not doing the film that alex thought we were doing because he we had a conversation about arthur and the invisibles it is not arthur and the invisibles that am that, i the only person on the planet that remembers arthur and the invisibles um, let alone uh, yeah we so in fact what we are doing is again another a film that we were also going to do previously but for reasons that that will remain secret. We decided to do something else, and now the time has finally come for us to do the Mitchells versus the Machines, so a film from a couple of years ago, um, Netflix film, uh, directed by Mike Rianda. Uh, a brilliant movie. We've just just watched it. Just both seen it um, for the first time. Uh, didn't really know much about it. You said to me before we started that you didn't really know anything about it, and we're going to kind of launch right in. And actually, I think that's probably a really good thing to just go into it a little bit blind. Yeah. We knew that it had done really well or, or kind of critically had done very well. Premiered on Netflix, as I said, a couple of years ago as a result of, of COVID. But everything that I'd heard about the film was almost universally positive. Uh, unfortunately, it, it didn't win the Oscar for Best Animated Feature. Uh, it, it was beaten by Encanto, a film that we've done previously. Uh, but I think we both think that it's probably better than Encanto. <laughs> well... I don't know. Uh, I think uh, well. well. We'll get into it. I don't yeah. hate it. I think it's good. I think it's. I think it's good. Oh, okay. <laughs> this is the first. I'm. Uh, this is the first time hearing of this. Yeah, this okay. lukewarm ambivalence. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I think. I think luke lukewarm to kind of uh, to to warm. I'd say. Right. I think it's fine. I think the film's all right. I think. Um, uh, I struggled with some of the attempts by the film often on this podcast we talk about tone yeah and and actually when we're trying to struggle to work out what a film is it's about managing tones and i'm not convinced i know how well the film managed the kind of madcap sensibility yes i know yes, yes, yes. i know it's this film it's directed or well, no it's not directed but it's produced uh, by phil lord and christopher miller so there's that kind of influence percolating yeah around we'll there with the kind of slightly more sincere it's all about family uh, stuff. And um, so I'm not sure about that. And I'm not sure, as a science fiction film, it really has anything to say about technology, about machines, that isn't incredibly muddied and contradictory. Um, which I guess is true of all pop culture, but I just particularly struck me watching this one, uh, maybe because I'm in a grumpy mood. No, no, no. It's, it's you know, we, uh, uh, let's, rev- let's pull the, the veil. It's... 
this is the first episode we're recording of 2023. So let's start the year as we mean to go on. A little bit grumpy, <laughs> well, we, a little grumpy. bit lukewarm. Uh, <laughs> sorry, lukewarm to warm. No, I would agree with you on that on that front. I think a film that is kind of critiquing technology that absolutely relies on digital technology to make its meaning, though there are other animation styles available. It's, it's not even film. that. It's that, it's that the film really likes a lot of the, like it, the film. So the film, the story, right? It's a sort of dystopic. Uh, road comedy thing where a, a, a sort of suburban family, the Mitchells, are required to save the world from an impending kind of Terminator-esque, Skynet-esque robot apocalypse started by our smartphones. Yes. So on one hand, the film is a sort of satire of our dependence, reliance, social engagement through phones. Yes, screen culture. But absolutely. it loves it. Yeah. It loves screen culture yes, and filters and YouTube and... Uh, social media and social yes. media yes, yes. and 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 to me you know i guess on another day you might read that as it being a film that's kind of negotiating these things and it's not necessarily coming down on one side or the other but uh, but i just it just read to me as kind of classic kind of you know mainstream paradoxical completely irreconcilable tensions being reconciled yeah. with a family hug at the end of it. Yeah, no, you're but right. You had a more yeah. positive reaction to it. No, so well, uh, no, so I, talk me through that. You're, you're right in, yes, you're right in the sense that th thematically the, the film is very, very interested in sort of a hypermedia aesthetic. And I had a lot of notes around, and now we're looking at the world through a, <laughs> I was going to say through a video camera, yeah. um, or it's actually a digital video camera. Let's put a cat filter on it. Yeah. Yeah, no, um, no, no, no. But, but the past in this film is about 2003, 2004, when they're looking nostalgically at these old old home videos. It's like, well, this was 2003, 2004. This is, in fact, 2005 yes. is when YouTube was uh, sort of came to the fore. So it's very interested in uh, a generation that's grown up with with your YouTubes, with your Instagrams, with your, with your cat filters. Um, and actually, screen culture gives the film some really interesting kind of flourishes. And we can yep. talk about its relationship to a, another film that we've done on the podcast, um, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, particularly what our guest in the episode, Simran, called the sort of crunch, the visual crunch of the film. So there's no surprise that... that um, in terms of the studio, Sony Pictures Animation, and uh, some of the creative personnel, there is a, a link to be made between these two films. Uh, so thematically, yes, the film is interested in screen culture at the same time as challenging our dependency, absolutely. Uh, on top of that, it was the, the animation, obviously, mm -hmm. as a computer-animated film, that is one of a post-Spider-Verse computer-animated films that are a lot more baroque and expressive and crunchy, let's say. And I have things to say about computer animations, generic qualities, and a film like Spider-Verse coming along that both disproves my thesis that all these movies are the same, but also actually proves my thesis that up to that point, those movies kind of look the same because it does something different. So this is very much cut from the same cloth as, as Spider-Verse. But mm. um, digi the, the digital technology element of the film also kind of contradicts the reliance or, or the challenge that the film makes to screen culture, given probably this film took four years of people standing very intently at screens and computer screens to sure. make the thing. So you're right, it is wrought with tensions, but I did find it super funny. I don't often laugh, as, as people in my department have said many times, I don't laugh uh, as much as I do smile. I'm more often, uh, more likely to smile than I am to laugh. I actually laughed out loud at certain bits of this film, which yeah. I really enjoyed, and, um, and which and I don't uh, often as, do, apparently. And as as did I, and I did note that, that actually we watch a lot of these films. Laughter, tick. Laugh a lot of these films together, and I did, um, I did enjoy it. I think, yes. I think and I, th I think it would be a, a film to watch on Netflix over Christmas, 
uh, which I suspect, or indeed over lockdown. As, as yeah, I, as there's I a lockdown quality to this for um, sure. But but um, so that's which is which I don't um, I don't mean to dismiss or, or trivialise. I actually think you know that's a lot of what we try to do on this podcast is make that kind of process of being entertained um, an interesting thing in and of itself. So like that's that's fine and that's good. Um, I do. I did. Yeah, we can talk about it. But I'm interested a little bit more about the context of this. You said it's um, it's it's got a lot in common with Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse in terms of design. Yeah. Was that also? So this is a Sony Pictures uh, yes. production. Is that the true of Spider-Man <coughs> as well, or is that is there a networking uh, a network link here, or is there a is it a technology? Uh, no, no, no. It's um, so uh, Sp- Sony Pictures Animation. So the studio, American Animation Studio, part of I would say, as I talk about in my book, still available at a very reasonable price. The computer animated film. Is the that? computer animated film industry style and genre with the Oxford comma missing uh, from those three key terms. Never mind. The, <laughs> uh, the which I forget every time I look at the title and then go, ah, oh, that needs an Oxford comma. Anyway, uh, so the the Sony Pictures Animation do appear. Uh, in in the book because I think they're one of the sort of big big five studios um, at the at the moment along with your Disney's Pixar's DreamWorks and and, um, and a few others, uh, but the, f- the the studio has a sort of relatively inauspicious start. So a lot of the movies that it makes um, really early on aren't uh, uh, they're not. I'm, I'm going to tread very carefully. They're they're films that perhaps people have seen, but they're not sort of big big hitters but they're intriguing in lots give, of give ways give me a couple of them so uh, the, their, their debut feature is Open Season so it's sort of nope. right there we go but their second movie Surfs Up from yes. 2007 so that's really interesting because that's a sort of mockumentary about a surfing competition but what's interesting about it is that it uses motion capture but not motion capture for the actors but uh, motion captured camera work so the cameras had little dots on them right. so that the, the camera uh, camera operators' movements were motion captured to give a computer animated film uh, a degree of authenticity. So, in the aforementioned book, the computer animated film, there is a case study of Surfs Up and how it sort of rethinks motion capture, does something different with motion capture. And then you have Open Season 2, so the sequel to the film that you've not heard of, uh, mm-hmm. that I think the original has Martin Lawrence and Ashton Kutcher as a sort of like biracial buddies, but Let they're me also. Guess like, one's a raccoon and one's yeah, a fox. Yeah, or like, yeah, like okay, bear fine. and something right, else. Fine. Then we get cloudy with a chance of meatballs. Uh, so they, they, I would say that so, Sony Pictures are an interesting studio because they operate almost like two tiers of production. A, 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 a cycle of movies that are direct-to-video sequels of stuff like Open Season or Surf's Up or whatever. And then these really original, um, kind of groundbreaking, stylistically, narratively explosive, intertextual um, Sam Summers, who was our guest on the second um, on the podcast when we looked at uh, Shrek Two, has written a piece on Spider Verse and kind of intertextuality and the sort of uh, visual illusions in the film that I think is very much um, yeah an influence on something like the Mitchells versus the the Machine. So yeah, Sony Pictures Animation are just a really interesting studio because they have this this production slate of sequels and then every other second or third film are these really formally digressive or divergent and stylistically interesting kinds of movies like a Surf's Up. And, wh- and why are they, just to make sure we are yeah. clear to the, to the listeners, why are they stylistically interesting? What's going on that's that's stylistically interesting about them? Yes, um, so Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, so the first um, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs 2, uh, sorry, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs film was 2009. Um, and up to that point, computer animated films 
part of their generic identity, let's say, was that they were they were cut from, and this is maybe the Toy Story influence, they were cut more from the Walt Disney style of animation than a Warner Brothers style. So back in the 30s and 40s, you have these competing studios, you have the hyper-realism and the sentimental modernism of, let's say, Disney versus the more uh, anarchic, cacophonic, um, uh, I wouldn't want to say abstract, but mm. violent... Uh, anarchy of stuff like you Looney Tunes or even with MGM and Tom and Jerry and stuff. So clearly the golden age rivalry between Disney and Warner Brothers is is something that uh, n hasn't really been replicated. Uh, you could probably say that, you know, Pixar and DreamWorks are, are sort of kind of doing something similar, yeah. but there hadn't really been a Warner Brothers style uh, an anarchic, punchy, anarchic. punchy um, with kind of weird editing patterns and and, yeah. and jump cuts and to create humour. Um, you you kind of see it a lot on television with Family Guy, Family Guy versus The Simpsons, the way that they use editing and sure. cutaway gags and things like this. Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, so co-directed by Phil Lord and Christopher Miller, who she said produced Mitchells versus the Machines, was sort of I would say one of the first kinds of movies to to start playing a little bit with that sort of hyper-realist, sentimental, um, you know, it's a sci-fi movie. Uh, and, and, and the same year as 2009 is also the year of, of uh, Shane Acker's film uh, Nine, which is, a, a, again, a computer animated film that is trying to do something different. So we're getting to the point where Toy Story, the Toy Story-esque films, 15 years old, computer animated films, are maybe starting to do something a bit different. A bit, a bit different. And Cloud of the Chance of Meatballs was the kind of anarchic... Finally, we've got a, a proper Warner Brothers. Sure. Shrek, Shrek obviously does some of that, lays some of that groundwork. But the character design of Cloud of the Chance of Meatballs, um, the use of humour, the contortions of the body, the use of editing... Um, kind of is doing something a little bit different with the generic template, I would say, whilst doing some things that are very, very similar in terms of star voices and, and um, fragmented families and all that sort of stuff. But there is something about Cloud of the Chance of the Meatballs that was seen to be doing something a little bit um, hyperbolic or exaggerated or anarchic stylistically. Interesting. Um, so I guess we should jump into the movie itself yeah. with that context. <clears throat> so... We start with some logos that they mess with. You're in your element. <laughs> I was rolling my eyes. This is what I have to deal with everybody. Why are you in your element? What do you love about... Uh, you, love a, you love a messed with logo, don't oh, you, Chris? Oh, I do. Okay, so let's, let's just basically go chapter by chapter through my book. There is a chapter <laughs> about, lo about characters that move into the logos, either credit sequences and kind of hang off of the credits and the names. Um, but uh, I, I like... a. a, a I like it when characters enter the sort of sacred space of the logo. So here the Columbia Pictures logo um, is sort of contorted a little bit and, and the familiar... And it, you, it, Pixar are obviously the foundation for this where you have the Luxo lamp jumping in to the logo and becoming the logo. Uh, the Columbia Pictures logo is very rarely messed with and has only undergone a few, few designs, um, redesigns. Uh, and here we have interesting characters or, or kind of colours and different animated shapes and so forth. I should say, uh, we are recording this, I think a couple of months after DreamWorks have redone their opening logo. Right. And, and normally DreamWorks are really are an interesting studio because they use the logo space as kind of extension of the story. So characters run in and out. The character Poe from Kung Fu Panda will jump in and be part of the logo. or And they just rebranded their entire logo to essentially be a sequence that takes us to Marvel style, the greatest hits, all the different characters, all their intellectual properties and stuff before we, the DreamWorks name is revealed. So it seems logos have 
being in the same way credits became spaces where you could do stuff and include bloopers and Marvel include the bit at the end, the post-credit sequence. Opening logos are now not just the bit that introduces the film, but like the film can start okay. before the film starts. So we, I, yeah, I was in my element already because the Columbia Pictures logo and the and the Lady Columbia, she stands there with the yeah. torches, is kind of being influenced by the stylistic register of the film. Well, it, it's it's filters, isn't it? That's what yeah. they start putting on it. It's fil- it it's fi- so I think there's an interesting <clears throat> thing the film might be trying to say here, which is why I found it a bit infuriating. <laughs> so I was trying to work out if it was trying to say it or not, about kind of mediation and like mediation as a me- as a meaning making device for for, for 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 these characters. Because the film is very interested in these kind of yeah, mediated visuals. So whether it be, you know, something as yeah, yeah. supposedly trivial as a cat filter or, you know, jumping to the end, uh, the, the kind of emotional climax of the movie where the father finally watches the, the child's, um, well, his, teenage, his grown-up teenage yeah, daughter's yeah. Um, uh, film and through the mediated story that she's telling understands what she's trying to tell him kind of literally. So there's there's a whole thing about kind of art and yes. and telling stories through other people's stories and using one thing to stand for another thing that is actually quite an empowering uh, or or at least a celebratory force in the film. And that happens right there at the beginning with these kind of mediated these mediated logos, mm. right? And then we jump into Instagram. I think the first shot is her like recording an Instagram story. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and YouTube is mentioned. And it makes me think actually what you're saying about these, the kind of contrasting traditions in, epitomized in that kind of Disney versus Warner Brothers yep. binaryism yep. is that one of the things that Disney is, is known for, and this is a word that comes up often when we speak to the, the, the filmmakers from Disney is this mm. word timeless, right? It has yeah. to have that timeless Disney quality. A tale as old as time, yeah, if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, 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 but this is very interested in being timely, not timeless. Yeah. It wants to reference YouTube, Instagram. It wants to speak about iPhones and, and Padlets and, and all these kind of things. And, and, and it wants to place itself in the here and now not in the could be could be any time. Yeah. Um, though though, I, though I'd argue, I absolutely agree, and and that's what makes a film like Ralph Breaks the Internet really interesting because it's a, it's part of the Disney feature animation canon, but it's the least timeless of all of them because it's relying on a an illiteracy with sure. with the internet and multimedia. I've certainly never never would never credit a Disney film for doing in the same way into that sort of intensified way. So, yeah, I, I'd not thought of that. The timely, a tale as old as time versus a a, a a timely tale that is very much speaking, as I said, to that generation that's grown up with with YouTube. She is a digital native. Yeah. Digital culture as a discipline talks a lot about digital natives and, and people that are able to use certain kinds of technology. And I think in this, in this film, her... Because it's a generational thing, because her father can't use technology, yeah, but yeah. she can, and so she's a digital native. But she's the, her her quality as a digital native is used to sort of connote her outside of them, that she retreats into herself and makes these videos and makes films with her dog and her brother, and 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 it gave me kind of Frank and Weenie vibes with the kid yeah. Victor kind of retreating into himself and and making films. Uh, he's a filmmaker. The film's about animation, as we joked about two minutes into the film when watching it. But um, but when I said digital natives, you yeah. were unsure. Like, well, your face I, was I, no. It's when you say I sort of agree with you, but not in a good way. Like <laughs> um, I think the film feels like a movie that wants to be timely, 
that is made by people who are about 10 years behind the, the curve of, of genuine digital culture. So they're more like the father and, and, and I the speak mom. as someone proudly also behind the curve, but I do at least have to talk to the 18-year-olds of this world on a regular basis. Mm. And this and it and it creates this character. It's like, okay, let's make her really digitally savvy. And she wants to make YouTube she's not a, she's not got an old cranked eight millimeter because that's old fogey stuff. It's a YouTube video and, and let's not make her make like really like art, you know, I don't you know, quote unquote art with a capital A movies. Let's make her make funny YouTube videos yep. and things like that. But it can't bring himself to kind of really saturate in that world because it, it's still really interested in like she grows up watching all old movies and the whole film is a, like, you know, it's riffing on Mad Max. It's riffing on Terminator. It's riffing on all, you know, it, it, it's let's imagine our perfect teenage daughters mm. uh, and we make them like this in the sense that they she still has this kind of nostalgic interest in the physical and this nostalgic interest in in filmmaking. She's mm. not an animator, although although that's what perhaps she should be. She's not a YouTuber, although that's perhaps what she should be. She's not yeah. an influencer, although that's perhaps what she should be. She's uh, she's Steven Spielberg, but using YouTube. Uh, and that kind of right. doesn't sit well with... She's Frank and... She's, she's Tim Burton's Frankenweenie. We haven't evolved past that narrative of, like, uh, of the shy kid playing with toys and, and the camera has to speak and I have to speak through the camera. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm thinking this through out loud because I understand that, like, it's not that yeah. dissimilar, but... I think there's something that doesn't quite work with that because yeah 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 sure so she's she, she's 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 a part of all of those things she's a little bit of an influencer by the end but not completely she's a YouTuber because she has this account and there's a kind of climactic joke about her father sending a friend requests by post um, because old people write letters it would seem yeah. um, but her her actual setup. I mean, there's lots of things we could say about sort of gender and and uh, the the domestic, given what we know of, of filmmakers. The, the, yeah, the, let's, kind of, let's say some things there. Yeah, go on. Like, uh, well, I mean, the, the the we often recourse to a Lottie Reiniger versus a the, the Disney has the studio, but Lottie Reiniger is making films at home on her tabletop and the craft. There's a relationship between the kind of domestic space, gender, and and craft. So there there are things to say about that, but her setup is. Is quite sophisticated because she does have like a green screen. No, I know, I know, I know, <laughs> so I know. I'm it's a weird. What, I'm, what I don't, it doesn't sit well. What I, I think because, the, as I say, I think sometimes the film gets it quite right because there's also this thing about like the way she makes meaning out of situations is to film them, yes. but not film them like I'll film them while they're happening, but to repurpose to stage them, them, yes, yes, to stylize them. Yep. And to kind of codify them according to some genre thing. So there's loads of bits in the movie. It's like, well, let's do that again. But rather than as it actually is, let's make it like um, Pulp Fiction, or let's make it. Well, she doesn't obviously say these things, but like, let's put us walking coolly in the background behind. Some, yeah, yeah. Some, a little like some Kill music, Bill. Yeah. A little bit like Kill Bill. And the fact there is a whole Kill Bill riffing sequence with the mother uh, towards the end of the movie yeah. as well. So it's like the film. The filmmaking, the madcap star, and I'd like to talk about madcap if we if we have time. Yeah, is that a right? Well, you know, this kind of. If, I think if people, if I use that term, that might be what I'm trying to get at. Madcap. It's wacky. It's crazy. It's kooky. It's it's yeah. It's don't take this seriously. It's uh, it's all funny. It's all jokes. It's all ha ha ha. Yeah. But there's a serious message behind it all, and that's that's what I can't stand. Right. Right. You know, that, uh, no, that, ma madcap is. Uh, I suppose in, in terms of well. Madcap 
it's very it's very difficult to define. So my best my best attempts are connecting it to screwball, let's say, as a genre, as an offshoot. Yeah. The, the comedy isn't a genre; it's a form or a mode. But the genres are a black comedy, adult comedy, gross-out comedy, romantic comedy, which. Romantic comedy is different to a rom-com, but we're not going to have that conversation now. Um, uh, and uh, a screwball comedy. But I don't know much about screwball comedies. But again, it's one of those things where one would know it if one saw it. But actually, I'm not, I, don't, I don't really know the generic features of a screwball comedy. But well, it, screwball it, comedies don't have bits where characters sit for about five minutes and cry and have solemn heart-to-hearts and learn something from each other. Uh, that's not what happens. The screwball comedy is defiantly anarchic yes. from start to finish. And Warner Brothers shorts are defiantly anarchic from start to finish. And this can't bring itself to be that insincere. No, and no, I would no, no. really, I would find it a more sincere movie if it cut out the bits of sincerity. If, if, if it stopped trying to be sincere, uh, yeah, yeah. because I think that compromises both its aesthetic and its thematic. Because okay. because it, you know, it, it just this moralizing bluntness of it's all about family that comes in an extremely elongated final sequence that goes on forever. Well, um, and then the credits. I'm tricking, I'm tricking myself into liking this movie less than I did, but, um, okay. uh, you know, it just strikes me as like, you know, you can't have your cake and eat it. You can't, um, you can't ask me, you can't dematerialize everything and make everything a mediation on a mediation on a mediation and then tell me it all matters. Mm. Um, okay, so my two, my, my, my two thoughts on that. One is yes. I agree with, uh, and, and as the credits were happening, which is sort of, Closing credit. The closing credits have pictures of the filmmakers, the the, the production personnel, but all of their families are old oh, photographs. Yeah. I find that a bit twee, and I find that a little bit. I find that my response to that is the same. Where you have the Pixar production babies, that all of these babies were born during the production of this film, um, which I feel the same about the special features on Pixar DVDs that try and make it seem like this is a really great company to work for, when you know full well that there are things going on. It doesn't matter if it's Pixar, it doesn't matter if it's Google. Yeah. The, the the special features can tell you what a great place it is to work. All the live long day and the animators are just like big kids who ride around on scooters yeah. as they move to production meetings. That might be true and you can hide behind a, a, a colourful Hawaiian shirt all you like, but stuff happens at those studios. That So I, I, my, it's not as intense, but I find that kind of forced sentimentality a little bit galling. Um, I have a question about the sincerity of the film. And uh, do you think the film would be more or less sincere, and, and this is going to sound odd, if one of the family members was missing? Because very famously in animation, there's always mm. a mother missing or a father missing. You have it in Clyde with a Chance of Meatballs. Very rarely a family is complete because what films, what animated films like to do is is <clears throat> talk about surrogate families. Sometimes even the protagonist of... Um, a lot of computer animated films is is an orphan, and that allows us to play with family uh, surrogate families. Uh, Gru is a good example in the Despicable Me films. He adopts these three children, and it allows those three children to to temper his villainy sure. and his masculinity. Um, very rarely do films play with complete families. The only one I, that jumps out is obviously The Incredibles, but yeah, they're I've also but they're also influence. different because they are superheroes. This is an ordinary complete. 
nuclear family. And and yet, they keep saying in the movie, this family's dysfunctional, this family's crazy. Like, everyone else in the in the film, like, starting right at the beginning, there's, like, this voiceover, and before we sort of cuts in the middle of it, we yeah. can see the post-apocalyptic robot fun, which we'll get to in a second, um, and then it kind of cuts back. And, sh- and the, I, I've forgotten the main character's Katie. name. Katie. Katie says... We're all broken. We're all not working, right? And there's lots of references to that yes. throughout the whole thing. They're not broken. They're absolutely fine. Like, they're absolutely fine. The mother, the, the father and the daughter are having a little... It's not like they're having a massively dysfunctional relationship. They're having a little bit of an argument that 90% of families are having right now. Yeah. Um, nothing... It's, it's all okay. It's all okay. And the idea that this is a dysfunctional family really pissed me off because it's like that's not that isn't that there is no there is no tension there is no struggle and I'd cope with that if you didn't ask me to kind of engage with the with the struggle mm. more but but there's just this you know there's lots of hints I'm getting I guess I don't know why I'm going on this massive rant today I think it just caught me in a bad mood or whatever but like there's there's there's, there's, there's more and more of this is happening this kind of like let's really engage with like let's not do the twee. 2.4 children, white middle class suburban family anymore. Mm. Let's 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 present the world as it actually is. So what we're going to do when we say that is we're going to make half of, we're going to make the family mixed race. Yeah. And we're going to have an Hispanic mum. And we won't nothing will actually change in the script and we won't engage with that. That won't be no. a part of the story. It won't matter in any way, but we'll make her Hispanic and then we've ticked that box. And do you know what we'll put we'll put a, a rainbow badge on on the character on I've forgotten her name Katie. already again Katie we'll put a ba- rainbow badge on Katie's um, rucksack and we'll put that on throughout the movie and we'll have a line of dialogue at the end that mentions that she's has a girlfriend yeah um, and we'll we'll allude to her finding her people but we won't actually sort of take we won't really really engage with that either yeah. that won't be a thing we consider about in fact what we're much more interested in is the little boys emerging heterosexuality yeah that's we're far we're, more interested yeah. in that so let's do that and and we'll and we'll pretend like there's this struggle going on and what we're doing is representing a kind of real America the Mitchells are us we're all the Mitchells aren't we and and the reality is no, like you know, fathers and daughters actually fall out over over these issues and don't speak to each other. And children leave home and are much happier when they do so. Yeah. And and sometimes nothing is reconciled, and that's okay too. Mm. Um, and this idea that what she learns in the movie is that she can have a girlfriend, but also really want to go on a road trip with her parents, which is where all the fun happens. It's just hideous. Mm. Like it's just it's fatuous. Like yeah. it's, it's no. I, the, um, the, it reminds me of the the res- well the response <laughs> in certain parts of the world to to Lightyear the um and 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 scenes where where heaven forbid there's a, a gay relationship yeah. or a there's not um, a gay then, relationship. There's yeah. a line of dialogue. Yeah. So, so but the, <laughs> the point is is that a lot of these a lot of these movies contain very little by way of substance with regards to these important um, kind of representations and so forth. In fact, they are so easily removed from the film that one can remove them from the film and show them in parts of the world where yeah. the film would previously not have received a release. So you either yeah. deal with it and make it central to the story, but if it's 
so easy and short as to be cuttable or dubbed over or just removed from the film entirely, then it probably wasn't a substantial engagement with those sorts of issues anyway. So you're, you're, you're right. The, the kind of queerness of, of Katie as a, as a um, young protagonist is this, is this untapped potential that the film kind of glosses over. And then, but then the flip side of that is, okay, great. Isn't it great that it's... Well, I don't, and I don't know, and I don't know the answer to this question, but isn't it great that the film doesn't have to centralise that in terms of it being... A, f a film with a, um, an LGBTQ plus the central character therefore has to be about those issues or uh, or is uh, it is uh, it other people more personally invested yes, in that's this true. probably would have a better opinion yeah, yeah, on this yeah, yeah. than I do but seeing as we're recording and, and we better get this episode out or I'm going to have to do more work I will I'll offer blunt ideas which is that which is that we're not there yet, are we, as a society? No. We're not there yet, whereby whereby we're already at a stage where it can just be in the background. To me, this is a sort of a more kind of a, a po-faced version of what what Hollywood's been doing for years. Yeah, yeah. Which you know, it's, it's Hollywood's always had LGBTQ plus representation. It's just always coded it and hid it behind the scenes and put it in a corner of the screen rather than front and centre yeah. and addressing it for what it is. And yeah. it's always allowed spaces for LGBTQ plus audiences to find those references and to feel empowered by them. If anything, the difference between this and you know a film from the 1930s is at least when the people were finding those references in the 1930s, there was something culturally subversive going on. There was an against the grain reading going on that, that might have in a, in a very small space, in a very small moment, empowered some people to feel represented. To me, sticking a badge and a line of dialogue on a character and yep. claiming that <clears throat> as some sort of diversity. And I've got no idea how much that played into the, the selling of this movie. Perhaps it didn't, and perhaps I'm being unfair. But it, it, it annoys me watching it because, because it's like, okay, right. I mean, this is the same family I've now watched yeah. thousands of times on the screen reconcile. There's nothing really different in it. It's not, I mean, it's, it's not just about... Uh, identity politics. There's nothing economically diverse about these these families. Apparently, they had to sell their nice house in the woods. Why did they have to sell that house? Why couldn't they have lived there? Don't know, but yeah. apparently you can't. You can't live in the woods with and a child. Be, yeah. You know, yes, you can. You can do that if you want to. Absolutely, you can do that. So that doesn't make any sense. He sells the nice house in the woods. He buys an equally nice house in the home. She's off to Cal. Arts, a perfectly great school. It's where all the, it's where all the animators. It's not Cal Arts, is it? It's California College of Film, but it's clearly Cal Arts, yeah. uh, where all these animators went Tim to. Burton, yeah, you goes, know, yeah. Yeah, all going to hang out. Like you know, there's nothing. There's no jeopardy. I mean, other than of course the, the robot. Robots. Sure, but that's not treated seriously. Like that's no. not serious. So that's not really jeopardy. Like, no, no, no. Um, the, f the, the film is very um, uh, explicit that the drama happens with it, and the same with The Incredibles. The villain is not. Syndrome, the villain is, yes. the, or the jeopardy comes to them later. The real drama is the, is what's happening on the inside. Exactly. Um, no, it, re it reminds me of, of lots of debates, and it's not the same thing, but lots of debates that happen around um, the visibility of, let's say, trans, trans communities. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's a brilliant documentary currently on Netflix called Disclosure, which is about um, identities that are predicated on invisibility. And the tagline for the, for the documentary, or one of the... the um, uh, kind of sound bites from the documentary is that imagine having an existence that's that's kind of predicated on invisibility. It's not that we were never, we, we, we weren't around. It's just you just have to look for us. And it's actually a documentary about representations of trans identity and, and, and communities on film that go right back as far as Birth of a Nation, well, even further back than Birth of a Nation. Um, 
but it's it's about the misleading or the false equivalence between visibility and progress. That visibility, extra visibility, doesn't equal extra doesn't equal, equal progress for a couple of reasons. One, extra visibility often create is not a is not a not the equivalent of progress because extra visibility creates certain communities to be targets. But sure. so. It's that classic thing of if you continually paint something as new, you're denying it history, and you're creating you're creating a kind of discourse of visibility. And 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 in this case, you go, well, this is great. This film has this um, has this character Katie, who is um, by the end of the movie is in a same sex relationship, and the film's kind of glossed, uh, glosses over it. And that's great, isn't it? Because we can kind of normalise it. But the visibility is not the same as as, as progress. And it, there comes a point where these references are so fleeting, a badge, a symbol. Uh, a, a, a moment in a scene that could easily be removed that it might as well not be there at all. Give me the people that have these stories behind the camera, hire them as animators and directors and creative voices so that they're in the room where, where it happens rather than these sort of symbolic gestures that kind of, uh, what's the word, that crawl over into hollowness that just yeah. become superficial, iconic sort of references. It's, it's, so it's, uh, but I think that's throughout the, you know, what the film's really interested in, ultimately, is the father-daughter relationship yeah. and how the two of them can reconcile. He doesn't like technology and doesn't trust it at all. She uses technology all as a the time. Oh, yeah. can't get enough technology. And he learns that, hey, maybe you should subscribe to your kid's YouTube fan channel and actually watch the video all the way through because you might learn something about what they're trying to do. And what does she learn? She learns that sometimes it's more fun to go on a road trip than it is to fly somewhere so that you can get there straight away. Mm-hmm. I don't know what she learns, but they kind of reconcile. And, like, I'm, I'm like, and I'm yawning saying this. Like, the, that it, film I have seen. Like, so, I'm more yeah. interested in any other permutation of the way you do that movie. Like, the, mo- the mother's barely in it. The mother... Yeah, she's great. And the mother and there's this and there's this kind of funny scene it is funny where um the the mother sees the son um in in peril and suddenly like her motherly instincts kick in and she basically turns into the bride from kill bill and starts um kicking robots left right and center and i suspect they thought oh this is amazing like this is really like female empowerment we've made the mum kind of the hero of the day and we've given her like power and agency and 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 she can be the violent one and she can things like that as a suburban mother who makes peanut butter sandwiches at the rest of the time and uh, is a, is a what first grade uh, teacher? Yes, um, yes, you know, like uh, I, I don't know what the dad does. I don't think it's established, but it's it seems to be implied that he's the dominant breadwinner. Yeah. Uh, so again, it's like a gesture. It's just gestorial. Yeah, all yeah. of it's gestorial, and, and the only reason I care is because it wants me to care, uh, and I don't, and I'm very happy not to care and just focus on the strength of the movie, which is the the gags, the the humour, the slightly weird... Um, I'd say if the film has a queer quality, it's in the weirdness of, of the robots that, that kind of... Uh, engage with them. It's in it's in the weirdness of the of the of the humor, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Mm. And there's a bit. Oh God, I'm sorry, I'm ranting today. But no. there's a bit at the end of the movie where he starts watch. I've already referenced it where he starts watching his kids' video, and he starts laughing at these kind of. It's like what's it like police dog? Yeah, and it's like it's really kind of wacky academy, and yeah. thing. And he starts laughing. And for a second, I thought, oh no, I've misjudged this movie. It's not going to be The Terminator, and it's not going to be Mad Max, and it's not going to be The Incredibles. It's going to be Sullivan's Travels. 
Like, it's going to be he realises that the value his daughter brings to the world by doing this stuff is because they're really funny and entertaining yeah. and madcap and imaginative. But no, that's not the bit he realises what that. He realises it when it all gets sentimental and tear-jerky and, and plays at people's kind of um, basic heartstrings. And I always wish that's the problem. That's the problem, is that the bit, that, the bit I've got more interest in is the first two-thirds of that YouTube video, and the bit I've got more interest in this movie is the bit where you're willing to deconstruct and and be a bit more punky. Um, yeah, ran over. Yes, ran no, over. that's interesting. That, that One of the videos... So she's yeah, she's a, a young creative that uses... Um, that, that her relationship to technology or her, her technophilia versus her father's technophobia is used to connote her outsiderdom. Uh, even though she's not really an outsider... Not she's very because she's very popular with her friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't really yeah. see where her outsiderdom comes from. Maybe I miss missed a bit, but... Um, one of the videos that she makes is this kind of spoof of, of um, a police procedural featuring her dog. And you're right that the first two thirds of that video are a sort of playful uh, recasting of something like Police Academy, but with the pug as the, as the lead character. And then the final sequence where it's like, hey, they're not really... It's not now the dog talking. It's she's talking to her father, yeah. who is who is one of the kind of because 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 this film <laughs> is made by a bunch of fathers who think that their, their dream is that their child would make a film about them. Like <laughs> yeah, when, when Inside Out's already been released, <laughs> you know, like you know, like like the, the kids probably made lots of YouTubers that are not. But maybe maybe she wouldn't make films about her dad. Maybe that would be what would and actually how a child would express their frustration with with yeah. their father's lack of understanding is not, to not make a not film. Not continually about him. cast the father. Yeah, 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 in, this, exactly. in the role of. But the, no, 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 I can't think that way. Through, um, yeah. No, I th I agree that tonally that. So the the bit that kind of got me was the moment where she. So she always is, is always carrying a camera, uh, and I quite liked the shift in. In uh, I don't want to say tone. I, I think it's more temporality. Where sometimes she's narrating at the start. She's narrating yep. seemingly retrospectively. Then she narrates as the film goes on, and we see we there are jump cuts. Her her editing of the video, or sorry, her editing of the film on the digital video is is used by the film as its edit. Yep. So there are kind of these cuts that create comedy where they are shouldn't eat at a burger place because it's got no stars whatsoever. Cut to they're all throwing up, and the cut is the Family Guy esque cutting is as a result of her video editing. So I kind of quite like some of that hypermedia, hypermedia stuff. But there's one bit where she realizes that she's been recording over some of her family's memories, which, as I said, even they're like 19, 18 years old. They're not, yes. they're not memories from but their song that they all sung when they were like four. Yeah. Is that weird remix of uh, song the, uh, that I thought was from the nineties? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. so, so not... their their nostalgic song made me feel old. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're essentially narrating the period from YouTube's inception to now, which isn't actually that long. Anyway, so she finds out that she's recording over her family videos and she rewatches or rewinds even further and goes back to when she was a child and we find out that the reason her father gave up the house that they lived in and built was because of her so suddenly it casts her as a villain but also she then takes on this role of oh I'll, I'll make it all up to you as if as if that as if it was her fault that she was born um and then that gives her her redemption arc and, and I was trying to figure out where the film is is it that the both the father and the, the daughter are sort of a little bit in the wrong or or I, I, I couldn't figure out who I was supposed to be rooting for in terms of my allegiance or my, my alliance yes. to one of the characters. Are we supposed to side with the, 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 the daughter whose father just doesn't understand No, her? we're supposed to just want them to reconcile because ultimately they both have a heart of gold, don't they? But yeah. again, like, because there's no real tension. There's no real, there's not actually any problem with this family. There's not, you know, they're, they're, not, a pro they're not a problem family. 
you know. So, and, and actually that's symbolized by that um, moose, that wooden moose, that yes. is this thing, that's this conch that's passed between them. When she's, it's given to the father, it comes from the, the house that he built, it's given to her as a child, he then gives it to her again when she goes off to, to sort of camp. Um, uh, and she she just keeps hold of it. And it's supposed to be the symbol of, hey, remind, but she never not has it with her or never yeah. not enjoys holding it. So her father, relationship with her father isn't that no, it's, irreconcilable. It's fine. It's fine. The, si- this, this, it's the, fine. the Simpsons of much, of far, I mean, I'm not saying this, Simpsons is far more subversive than this. Like at least Homer strangles Bart and like is negligent a little bit. And, you know, at least it dares to go slightly there with the, in The Simpsons. I'm not claiming that as some sort of like, radical text either but even the simpsons will like you know will acknowledge the father's laziness and well even marge or 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 bart's actual bullying of his sister i mean only playfully and only softly but this doesn't even do that the father's really hard working and really cares about his kids all right he doesn't really understand what youtube videos are and perhaps he could give his kids art a little bit more time and appreciation uh, and perhaps not say the day before she goes to college have you got a yeah, backup yeah. plan? Um, but you know, it, it's, it's 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 in the grand scheme of crimes, it's not it's not that bad. Yeah. The mum's perfectly all right. Maybe she should speak her mind a bit more rather than try to get the father to kind of say what she thinks. Yeah, on or, these weird placards. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, he... yeah, 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 yeah. The kid loves dinosaurs. He's going to be fine. Like you know, it's it's all fine. It's all okay. Yeah, actually, the placards. So there's a, an interesting scene where the the the, the two children. I think it's right. The two children and the two adults are talking to each other, and there are these cards that presumably each one has written. Or there's a, there's a yes. This is the thing. These are the things that one should say in these particular moments. And now you speak. And and that to me sort of symbolises a whole film that's very performative in and superficial in the way that it deals with trauma and problems. Because you say yeah, everything yeah, yeah. is fine. Just, just just say this instead, and it's it will be all right. Yeah. So there's not okay. So so one of the things that the that we're sort of calling the film out on, I guess, is that are these, are these, as you said, there's no jeopardy within the members of the family. The jeopardy is supposed to come from its science fiction narrative, which is teased at the beginning, and then we we go back in time to have this yes. lead up to all of these robots that in it's iRobot. It's it's all these, and this kind of I just feel like this is a film designed by sort of dads, like dads who think they're cool. Um, I have no idea if it is, obviously, but like that's how it felt. Well, the pictures in the credits seem because to imply that that's, it is. That's true. That's true. Yes, it did exactly. Yes, um, that's true of the robot stuff as well. Because all right, so what it is? Yeah, there's this robot apocalypse. It's all started by Siri, but it's not Siri. What's it called? Pal. Pal. It's not um, Alexa. It's not voiced Cortana. superbly by Olivia Colman. We'll who, talk about that in a minute. Yeah, yeah. The, the, no, nothing bad to no say notes. about that. No notes on that. <laughs> well, I don't. Have, I don't have much to, to <laughs> add. Um, uh, other than I, I'm thinking of writing on, um, writing on on these kinds of. AI tools like an Alexa, uh, Cortana, Siri, and the relationship that they have to um, race and and, and gender. And actually, there's a lot of stuff. So uh, Jennifer O'Meara, who's written a book called Screening Women's Voices in the Digital Era, and then before that, The Computer's Voice by Liz Faber, that talks about um, 
the kind of master-slave narratives that we have with digital technology, and particularly these these um, AI, uh, it's even called in the film, you know, these virtual assistants. We have or digital assistants that, that become a new member of your family. So whether it's Siri, Cortana, Alexa, they are universally coded as white women, um, which is a particular problem with regards to yeah, these kinds of master-slave. So there's a whiteness to AI that there's a long long history of, of people writing about. Um, <clears throat> um, the whiteness of AI. And it reminds me of, of iRobot and having a conversation with my students about what the casting of Will Smith as a, um, as a, a, as a black lead in a film where the robots are white is supposed to do, that we're supposed to kind of think if, if he's black, then the robots are white because they are designed, think of any Apple product, for example, mm -hmm. white whiteness. Um, and actually the argument, if you do any reading around cyborg identities from Haraway, who writes on simians and cyborgs, that actually the cyborg is the perfect analogy to think through non-normative identity, sure. or at least identities that are figuring out their relationship to normativity. Yeah. Um, and, and writing on the cyborg talks about it as a, as a queer space, but also even mixed race. Um, so they're writing on the, on the cyborg, the mulatto cyborg, that the, the cyborg through struggle, through discourses of struggle, resistance, rebellion, um, is always coded as 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 other. However, we want to interpret that. So, I, I was sort of intrigued by the casting of a white woman. I was, of course, Olivia Coleman is is the Siri surrogate in this. Of course, of course, she's the virtual assistant because because that's what AIs are. AI voices, Siri, Cortana. They these are white. It's white femininity. Um, and Liz Faber's book, The Computer's Voice, mm -hmm. talks absolutely about this, whether it's, um, and the subtitle of the book is something like from Star Trek to Siri, um, and all the way through these sorts of virtual, Tomorrow Never Dies, James Bond, the car, he even jokes that I think we've met to the, to the, the, to the onboard yeah. white female that's talking to him. So AI and these sorts of virtual digital assistants are always coded as white women. Um, well, not always, but uniformly, very often. Very often. And, and Faber's work and, and um, O'Meara's uh, new work on screening uh, women's voices in the digital era is kind of thinking through some of these, what does it mean to hear these kinds of voices in these kinds of roles? So I was, I, I had a little note is around, it, isn't it interesting that Olivia Coleman is, of course, this character? Is it an issue of class as well? Yeah. In the sense that, yeah. actually, it is often white women, you're right, but it's, if it's not white women, it's, it's Jeremy Irons or Paul Bettany or like British. The upper class British, uh, yeah. the butler, basically. Yeah, right? yeah. You know, you could imagine yes. them as a butler. Yes, Mr. Or, Wayne. Or, or yeah. Mrs. Devera in, um, in in a Rebecca uh, re-adaptation or something like that, you know. Yeah. Um, and, that, and that's why they've cast Olivia Colman in that respect, is she brings some of that... Um, to the role as well, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no but. Yes, you're right. Actually, so even that we can have issue with. So I'm really talking myself into not liking this movie. Um, can you talk me back into it, Chris? Uh, or have I talked you into it? Now? Who knew art could be useful? As the father says, who knew that art could be useful? Well, all of us all the time, but fine. Yeah. Um, I uh, okay. So I I tell you why I was interested in the film. Um, and and. And I and I don't know what the answer to this is, but maybe. Like, so I'm going to think through this now, and it could yeah, be yeah, if, yeah, if, yeah. If, if people don't hear this because you cut it out, people, <laughs> people never know. But there we go. Oh no! Um, if, if this is bad, I'm leaving this. I in. was thinking about I only cut out the good stuff. I was thinking about neurodiversity, and I was thinking about animation's relationship to neurodiversity because there are hints in the movie that the young boy, um, so Katie's <clears throat> Katie's brother Aaron, yes. who is. Uh, Voiced by the film's director um, and this sort of dinosaur-obsessed obsessed character, um, 
he and, and maybe this is incorrect, but there are there are hints that maybe the movie was giving me, or the the movie was at least offering space or inviting me to maybe read some of his actions as as neurodiver. He's a neurodivergent individual, and I was thinking back actually to an animation class I had yesterday about animation's ability to media. Animation is the medium that exists between us and the world. It takes what is cultural consensus um, and what is cultural consensus, if not things that we take for granted, because when things become consensus, they become things that we don't critique. And obviously the, the role of the university is to kind of think critically, of course. But um, animation is always an iconic medium, so it'll always be an interrogation of the real. We've talked about this before. It's always rhetorical. It's always enunciative. It's always an intermediary that exists between us and the world. Otherwise, the page would be blank. Fine. Yeah. Um, and one of my students said, well, that's really interesting because animation is always in this kind of creative bargain with the real world. Will it go for mimesis or will it go for abstraction? Will it will it follow the world absolutely in the Disney hyper-realist fidelity or will it go to cubism or abstract and all this, all these kinds of things? Uh, and the student was saying, well, actually, you know, neurodivergent individuals are always thinking about their relationship to normativity, but also trying to move through a world uh, and navigate spaces that they aren't or, or, or are, are struggling as they move through the world, let's say, in lots and lots of different ways, lots and lots of different spaces, um, spaces that aren't built for them, designed for them, all these kinds of things. There's always a relationship that a neurodivergent individual may and often does have with the world. And I was thinking, and then the students said, well, actually, animation is then the perfect... I can see why lots of neurodiverse or neurodivergent communities are really interested in animation as a medium because it allows them to play out as a medium of catharsis some of these tensions that they're having with the world. And I was thinking actually some of the visual style of the film it could almost be seen as, as characters trying to make sense of their surroundings. There are bits where a character has an idea and you have a light bulb. Yeah, there's quite and, a lot of that, isn't there? And, yeah. and, and so animation is being mined for its ability to, to communicate via symbols and via metaphor, things that we can't put into words. Um, I, you know, I imagine a, a discussion of mental health brings with it a dark cloud. There are plenty of movies that play with that kind of, sure. what does depression look like? What does mental health look like? What does struggle look like? And so it seemed to me that there were moments in the film, I don't think this is necessarily true of, of Katie, though again, maybe there's a space to think about her queerness. I don't want to equate queerness with neurodiversity, and not, that's not what I'm saying at all, but her otherness, there were moments where I, I was seeing a parallel maybe with, with the way that, with, with the brother in terms of an obsession with a particular thing, that I wondered whether there's a, a play with with neurodiversity or something and actually how the medium itself is doing some really interesting work on on articulating a neurodivergent experience and maybe that's and there's some you know we we know animators alex widowson that's making films about uh, very personal films about autism and, and animators like susan young using animation as this as i said medium of catharsis to play yeah. through some uh, to play through issues of trauma so one of the things that did interest me is is about how the creativity in the film is sort of often I, I was reading it as not a point of view for, of the characters, but a sort of an experience of, of children that are going through things. She's going off to university. Um, he's finding his passions, his dinosaurs, but also a, a younger girl that he likes. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, there's just something interesting around whether or not this is a medium that's articulating those sorts of um, experiences. and and. I just wondered whether neurodivergent identity was something that was part of this film. I'd love to read more about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess my response to that is that I think I think I, I think that 
the 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 jump the thing you've jumped onto from the movie is very interesting. But the movie's doing um, it. Yeah. Well, I don't think the movie's not doing it, but I think it's doing it in the same. I think I think if you ask the director, again, this is all just random speculation, but. I think if you asked the director, he would say, yeah, exactly, with that character. And the same, I wanted to, I want all the characters to represent different types of otherness. Yeah. And I think yeah. my argument is that they don't. Uh, they don't, because you didn't actually have the convictions to make these characters remotely yeah. uh, <clears throat> othered, if to want to the better word. I yeah, mean, that yeah. implies a normality, but to me, you have normalized. This is a very, if this is what a dysfunctional family looks like, then you've ostracized a very, very significant number of people who are dealing with problems because of inherent power structures and ideological mm. bias and all the other and economic problems and all the other things that are, go against an individual trying to make it in this world and trying to forge a community. Mm. These these people are the cream of, of 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 sitting on a big old trough of milk. You know they're not, they're, they're fine. They're fine with. <laughs> sure, I um, have I have done a quick um, on the spot um, search online, and there are a few blogs and and chats with the director about. That, that many of the, and this is from a, a website, Optimist Jenna, some people say that the beloved characters in the film might be on the autism spectrum. Here's why it matters. So so some people are staging these de these debates, um, but yes, would we need more of that in the film to be able to make those claims? I think there's, there's enough to at least start well, a conversation, but well, I don't, I, I I would don't argue know enough. If it's representing autism, if it's representing any kind of neurodivergent category, yeah. it suggests the secret is just to power on. <laughs> like, because basically, just yeah, have the courage, ask her out, and you'll be fine. Like that seems to be the solution to to what's yeah. actually quite a difficult problem to deal with. Yeah. So that's that I object to. Okay. Um, I, you know, so I think I think that's it. Um, I don't think I need to rant anymore about this. No, I'm. Uh, well, I want to, oh, go on. No, I was, was going to say I don't have too much uh, too much more uh, too much else to say. Uh, yeah, the thing about I thought it was you know the focus on a complete family, a complete in. Yeah. Quote marks is interesting because, as I said, I think a lot of animated films use an incomplete family to, to play with issues of surrogacy and mm -hmm. friends as family. And in fact, there's even a, a musical number, I think, from the Lego movie or the Lego Batman movie, friends, friends, friends as family or friends are your family. So there's right, yeah. it's very rarely does one have a complete. So actually, I thought that was quite interesting, an interesting premise to actually have a complete family who kind of like each other that there's a there's not really that much tension and jeopardy oh, so you found right. that interesting and I'm as in, as in I, I'm pleased that they did I, I tell you what I'm pleased about I'm pleased that after the first 10 minutes the mother didn't die because that makes a different kind of relationship between the because often sure. often the mum's mum's absent and whether it's Jasmine and the Sultan or even the yeah. father and son in Cloud of the Chance of Meatballs it's about look we're, we're both experiencing loss here and why don't we band so the film didn't use lean on those kinds of tropes to play with a missing family member um, it kept them all completely it separated them for parts but often they were paired up and often they were working together so there, there wasn't that many opportunities so I thought that was an interesting take but I, I agree with you that I don't think the, I don't think the family are themselves this madcap bonkers we should be we're, we're different we're the Mitchells yeah, well, I mean you just look like yeah. every other family yeah. I can and who's who's gonna have to save humanity uh oh it's the Mitchells <laughs> right like, 
Perfectly capable. Perfectly capable. Uh, when we start this podcast, I didn't, as in this episode, <laughs> yeah. rather not 2018, um, that the, I thought, oh, this would be a good one to do. We'll talk. And it's a good one to do and to talk about. But um, I, hey, I enjoyed I, watching it. But as we talk about it more, I'm Maybe sort of, I'm yeah, in I, the throng of a January b- blues and I'm being unnecessarily harsh. Um, and uh, and I did I did laugh a lot and I felt I didn't mind watching it. And, and I don't want to not take that seriously as well. Like, it, um it's just I think it's I think it's come at a culmination of me watching a lot of these movies yeah. that have phrases attached to them, and I'm looking at the Wikipedia page here, and just to quote from that, it says, "quote The film received critical acclaim for its animation, voice acting, action sequences, themes, humor, and LGBT representation." And I just think this film does not deserve to be acclaimed for a lot of those things, yeah. particularly the issue of representation, but also the idea this offers any kind of thematic complexity, just more broadly anyway. Yeah. I think the film shouldn't be criticised for it necessarily. I don't want to go, it's not an either-or problem, but this is not a valorising movie for LGBT representation. Yeah. Yeah. And nor is it for neurodivergency, nor is it for class divert. you know, like, cl- not, not, it's, it's, it's all the same as it always has been. Yeah. Although I hadn't thought about the idea that maybe the fact that it is complete and assured and sealed is something slight. That actually yeah. within the kind of code of these movies might be something. Yeah, it perhaps doesn't rely on the sorts of shorthands yes. that, that, that animated films often use to create and elicit emotion. And, and yeah. a father and son can only bond because of yeah, like uh, the, the, you could have made it worse, couldn't you? You could have had it that he he but he cancels her flight and only him and her go on the on the road trip and we say goodbye to the rest of the family because um, we don't need the mum getting in the way of the of the yeah. I mean, yeah. we could have made it worse. I just think we could have made it better. So on that note, <laughs> here's here's the 2021 uh, shortlist, the, the the nominations yeah. for the best animation features. Okay. Yeah. We've seen three of these, and I think well, I think you like this one the most out of the three, but I think we've been underwhelmed by all three of them. Okay, okay so go on. Encanto. Yeah. Which one? Yeah. Flea. Yeah. Luca, I've not seen. I don't know if you've seen no, that. No, I'm really behind yeah, on yeah. my... The Mitchells versus the Machines. <laughs> yep. And Ray, Raya and the Last Dragon. Which I've seen, yeah. So I've seen... And and and, and just for me, we'll, we'll, I'll leave this in, but I don't want you to tell me with your lips. I want you to tell me with, with, your, with, your, with a thumbs up, thumbs down. Raya and the Last Dragon. Okay. Um, so I, I propose maybe we will revisit those other two on future podcasts and we will find out finally which, which of the, the best. what frankly seems to be quite an underwhelming year is the best. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I, I am intrigued by um, a sort of baroque turn in within an animated popular animated feature films, and particularly in Hollywood, the sort of visual explosion. It's I, I, it, it is it is a post let's say it's a post Spider Verse phenomenon, but I think it it accounts certainly for the last ten years of Disney from the first Wreck It Ralph, which was v- doing something very different with that sort of inside a video game, uh, taking all these different intellectual properties and really playing with it. And I think there are these baroque qualities that of course play through Encanto, um, that play through Frozen, that that play through Zootopia, and so I, I I am intrigued in that and how that then spills out into these movies like Free Guy or any yeah, of the sure. Marvel movies or um, I mean I also add the, the latest Tom and Jerry the S- Space Jam A New Legacy all these kind of intellectual property extravaganzas yeah. where all these, these this stuff comes in uh, and, 
and there we go. It's just all there. And yeah. so in terms of visual interest and, and richness, I would just wonder what, I just wonder what, and I'm, as I always do with when thinking about the generic quality of computer animated films, where does the genre go next? And that's how genres work. You have your chaotic period of, of what's going on. You have your refinement, your illusionist compass. This is this is. Then then we go out the other side and we get our baroque, more experimental yeah. baroque phase. And I feel like computer animated films with Mitchell's versus the machine, Spider Man versus um, uh, Into the Spider Verse, sorry, yeah. and Encanto, and I'd have probably had Coco as well. Uh, these sorts of really dense, luminous, uh, chaotic, uh, baroque features. Okay. Um, well, I don't know what compu- where computer animation no, goes next. And, and and I yeah, stylistically, I, I I agree with all of that. I think absolutely. absolutely. So so the article to w- from which that gobbledygook comes should be should be. I'm just I'm interested in in the sort of the idea. We've of had the baroque. that yeah, we've had that period of refinement, and now we're sort of doing. Maybe we should do a footnote on that. Ah, for a future episode yeah, slash in a few minutes time. yeah yeah um, well there we go uh, I think we're, 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 <laughs> we've we've done Mitchell's versus the machines and it was it was a, a, a pleasant watch um, I think a lot of people may disagree as in I know a lot of people liked it so I'd love to have conversations about it yeah yeah, yeah but if I've, if I've annoyed anyone please I'd like to be I'd, I'd like to be put back in my box because I'm not I'm not convinced I gave the film due <laughs> credit there um, I might have just been doing uh, doing a mood thing. So by all means, um, if you if you want to get in touch, I mean there's social media, um, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and it's at Fananim Research, F A N A N I M Research. Um, you can tag us in there, and we'll respond um, on that. Um, you can also use that same handle, that's F A N A N I M Research at gmail.com to email us directly. Um, and and tell me why I'm wrong on that, or why Chris why he's right, uh, or something in between. Um, and also, if you want to pitch um, a blog post based on anything we've yeah. discussed, if you're a, if you're a researcher or an animator out there, or a budding journalist, um, someone who thinks they want to sit down and actually write something serious about this topic um, based on any, either your thoughts on what we've said, always looking for uh, new additions to the blog. So get in touch via the website fantasy dash animation.org and on that website you can find the archive of blogs and podcasts on that including the 2000, 2021 series we seem to be doing <laughs> including Encanto, Flea and now Mitchell and versus the Machines. Not Arthur and the Invisibles. No, that's... Another that's pairing another time. Another time, yeah. Um, Chris, I'm sorry to have been grumpy this week. No, that's alright. It's It's... Four years and counting. No, I'm <laughs> yeah, um, it's like, uh, as, uh, what are you normally like? No, no, um, no I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would be interested to, to to hear what people kind of say about yeah. the in response to the film. But I, I I think there are there are kind of problems with it that maybe the the visual crunch. Uh, we can look past some of the the because you know I think stylistically it is great and, and there are certain bits that look mm-hmm. that look um, wonderful aesthetically it's beautiful but uh, m- maybe looking past that. Is there enough to kind of latch on to with regards to the family and their exceptionality? And, maybe and, not. And maybe there doesn't need to be. No, we'll maybe not. That. So um, okay. thanks, yep. uh, everyone. We'll see you next time. Uh, bye. Bye.